Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Welcome to a special presentation on the Michael Spurkanish program on Sirius XM's POTUS, channel 124. This is a Sirius XM town hall with 2024 Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, live from the historic Center Theater in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Here I am. Here's Michael Smirkanish. Theater in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Thank you, Vivek. It's great to see you. I've pronounced the name correctly from the get-go. I just you have been. Right. Yeah. But people are confused sometimes by it because of the spelling. Vivek, you get a lot. It is Vivek like cake. Like cake. You got it. So uh, the, the short form of the bio, I think we're familiar with. Thir- here's, here's the conventional version. 37-year-old biotech entrepreneur, Republican candidate for president, Cincinnati native, Hindu who graduates from a Catholic high school onto Harvard as an undergrad, Yale Law School, founder of a biotech business that made you very wealthy, married to Apoorva. She's a throat surgeon. You're raising two boys. How am I doing so far? Really well. I'm impressed, actually. Okay. But tell me about the Harvard alter ego Ah, yes. You're you're thinking deep. I like that. Who was that guy and what was he all about? That guy was my libertarian rapper alter ego in college. So uh, so they used to have these open mic sessions that I used to show up and I used to be, I used to consider myself a libertarian, somebody who was heterodox, standing up to the man, doing what you were supposed to do as a college student from 2003 to 2007 and used to have fun with it. But I think it was an early... Yeah, it was an early expression of the part of me that in some ways is running for president today to speak unapologetically, unconstrained, generally saying the things that other people find difficult to listen to, but which I find to be true. And I think there's a real service in doing that. So it's always been part of my personality to be a little bit contrarian. If the crowd's running in one direction, I typically go in the other. It's part of what allowed me to be successful in the business world. But I think in this campaign, we're doing much of the same within the Republican Party, across the political landscape, really taking on some of the some of the difficult issues that other people are maybe a little prudish to confront. That's what I was doing starting in my days rapping in college. Would you rap in front of live audiences? I ha- I had before. It's I'm a little rusty. Well, so could, so could you could you indulge us? You know? just a little. <laughs> I mean, come on, just a little bit. Because I got to tell you, Vivek, I can't find any video. 
Like, has that been oh, oh, buried? Yeah, there was. I mean, this is back from, like, 2003, 2004, so I'm sure it's out there. Give me, you, give me something. Come on. You know, for Sirius XM. What do you got? I mean, literally, yeah. you are putting me on the spot here. All right. It's Vivek like cake. I'm not fake, and I swim in a lake of truth. That's me, Vivek. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anti-woke is a hallmark of your persona, of your campaign. Selena Zito, you know her because she's, she's interviewed you, and I, I regard her as a Trump whisperer. She's got Pennsylvania roots. Uh, that's a good thing. She just spent time with Mark Cuban, and Mark Cuban says that being woke is actually in the best interest of American businesses. He said there's a reason that almost all top 10 cap companies in the U.S. can be considered woke. It's good business. Most CEOs have enough experience to know to just wait out the news cycle until you get to the next one. A hard argument to make, I think, in the aftermath of Anheuser-Busch and Target and some of these other episodes. But I'll ask you nonetheless, is it in good long-term business to be progressive in your thinking? I don't think it is in the long-run business interest of any business to take on a political ideology that has nothing to do with its core mission. So here's my view. Thank you. I appreciate that, guys. Here's how businesses succeed. They make products and services for people who need them, and they make money doing so unapologetically. That's how capitalism works. That's how Milton Friedman envisioned it so that businesses could be more successful. But part of the reason, and Michael, I think you know this about me, my opposition to this trend of stakeholder capitalism, or we can call it woke capitalism, is not just that it makes companies worse off. I think it actually leaves our civic culture worse off, too, because it says that the way we're supposed to settle our differences of opinion on racial justice or climate change isn't through free speech and open debate in the public square. It's through the number of dollars that flow through the market. And I think that's a rejection of the vision of the American Revolution. The American Revolution was fought on the idea that no matter our differences, we settle them through free speech and open debate where every person's voice and vote counts equally. And so what this trend of stakeholder capitalism or woke capitalism is really about is converting that one person, one vote, one person, one voice system into a one dollar, one vote system, which funny enough is something that actually the left used to be against before 2010. Now it's become apparently more of a conservative point, but I think this goes beyond Republican and Democratic lines. It's an American point. My thought is I'm all about having the conversation, which is why you're here. I'd much rather engage you in in dialogue in the same way that two weeks ago, yesterday, RFK Jr. sat in that chair because I want to air all of these things. I'm with you. In in the the context of of woke, whatever that might mean, uh, and business, I looked at the whole Anheuser-Busch chapter and i i just don't get it like kid rock out there with some type of a uh, an ak weapon shooting cans dylan mulvaney like who gives a shit yes right i mean live and let live is that not where we should all come from i agree with live and let live as it applies to adults there's a separate category for kids but when there's a business here that's purposefully taking a step they weren't just managing to see how can we better distribute beverages that taste good and meet our customers no that wasn't what they were doing They were making a purposeful statement in perhaps one of the most culturally fraught issues of our time. So I think it is perfectly reasonable for a customer, if they feel like the business that they do business with spits in their face, 
for them effectively to who spit was, back. Who was spitting in whose face? I mean, well, if, like Michael Jordan, let's sell sneakers to Republicans, too. They, they were simply extending a courtesy to Dylan Mulvaney. They weren't going to go put cans in Cincinnati, Ohio for sale for AB with, with her likeness. It was like, hey, we'll use her as an influencer. And I don't think that anybody should go and barricade Anheuser-Busch's office and stop people from reporting to work either. But if there's a customer who feels like their value set is purposefully disrespected, including the idea that in their view that there are two genders, and more importantly, that this isn't the business of a company, then it is a perfectly reasonable response for that customer but, to say, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. But if elsewhere. the perception of that consumer is so unfounded in reality, why should we bend to, to their perspective? Again, that's a decision for every business to make. So I'm not talking about outlawing any behavior, but I think it is perfectly reasonable for a customer, as you said, live and let live, for that customer to be able to let live and shop where they want. And you've seen what happened to Anheuser-Busch sales in the meantime. So that's actually how the free market works. Part of the distortion, though, comes upstream of this. This is the real story, right? Because otherwise we could spin circles and it's a complicated issue. My first book, Woke Inc., was about this, was... There are invisible forces driving the behavior of those companies that need to be exposed. Those are asset managers like BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard that are frankly using the money of probably most of the people in this room with us in this auditorium to invest in America's public companies that effectively force them to adopt these environmental and social agendas through their proxy voting power. So that's really the invisible hand behind the behavior I, I of these corporations. It's, it's, it's no longer single stockholders who are out there from a bygone era. Instead, all that, that, that capital is controlled by big investors. By the way, Axios, four days ago, with regard to you and this whole subject of the acronyms ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance, DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, they say that you fashion yourself as a sort of a warrior against these interests, but the business that you founded engages in some of these same practices. I'm sure you read the story. What it literally said was the drug company founded by and formerly led by anti-ESG and DEI crusader Vivek Ramaswamy has a nonprofit arm whose official mission now includes increasing racial and gender diversity of pharma industry leadership. Yeah, it's actually a sad story, and I actually told this one in my first book as well. In the wake of George Floyd's death in 2020, there was a demand that I make a statement, as then I was a biotech CEO, on behalf of Black Lives Matter. I refused to do it. I couldn't do it in good conscience. And so I said our job is to, to develop medicines. That led to a series of controversies where, over the next seven months, I had to make a choice. Was I going to be free to speak my mind as a citizen, or was I going to speak through the filter of corporate self-interest, saying what other CEOs were supposed to say? So I stepped down as biotech CEO after seven years of building a multi-billion dollar company, stepped down in January of 2021, but we did something very intentional at the time. My number two at the company got put in the, I put him in the job as CEO, I recruited him into the company. He actually has very different political views than me. But what we said was, going forward, his voice would be the voice of the company on all matters, and my voice would be speaking as a citizen. That allowed me to be free to write Woke Inc. and then Nation of Victims, that book that's you know, right beside you here, and my third book thereafter. Then traveling the country and leading this presidential campaign with saying that that's not the voice of the company. That's Vivek Ramaswamy, a citizen. But that also allowed the person who was leading the company to say that, you know what, I'm a shareholder of that company, yes, a minority shareholder, 
But that business is not going to represent okay, my voice Okay, but does the business either. that you founded, does it engage in some of the very it practices does now, that, that you're critical of? After I step down on C- okay, SEO, it, it absolutely does. And okay. I disagree with them. But okay. I respectfully disagree, and that's part of actually the decision that I made in 2021. The Supreme Court seems poised to end race-conscious admissions. You're an opponent of affirmative action. Uh, you welcome, I think, where we both expect the court is going to end up on these matters. Does that mean that the premise of affirmative action was faulty from the get-go or that we've achieved the objectives which it set out to correct? I would say it was faulty premises from the get-go. That doesn't mean that the intentions were all bad. So the intentions were, look, in the 1960s, if you look back a century from 1960 all the way back to 1860 – Yes, we do have some uneven history in the United States with respect to black Americans, to say the least. Right. But the question is, how do you address that? Is it by repeating the same mistakes of creating new forms of race-based discrimination, which was the vision of affirmative action, which Lyndon Johnson signed into law, including by executive order, saying that if you're going to do business with the federal government, you have to adopt race-based quota systems. Is that the right way to do it? Or is it to actually create a level playing field for all Americans to have equal opportunity regardless of their skin color? So So I come down on the side of it was a failed experiment. And actually many black Americans today are worse off economically than they were in the 1960s. Fewer black children are born into stable two-family households today than was the case in 1960. So I think it has been a disastrous failed experiment For white Americans, Asian Americans, black Americans, Hispanic Americans, it's left us more divided, and it has even hurt the very people it was supposedly designed to help. So So I I think it's time to put a nail in the coffin and find a better way forward. I know that that you know this. Uh, Lyndon Johnson delivered the commencement address at Howard in 1965. It was two months before, as a matter of fact, signing into uh, law the Voting Rights Act. He was reflecting on, and I I ran this clip on my show on CNN on Saturday, but he was reflecting on what I'll describe as the history of the black experience from slavery all the way through Jim Crow. And he said, freedom is not enough. You do not wipe away the scars of centuries by saying now you are free to go where you want and do as you desire and choose the leaders you please. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains, liberate them, bring them up to the starting line of race and then say you're free to compete against all others and still justly believe that you've been completely fair. Thus, it is not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. He was right when he said that, correct? You agree with those sentiments. I I, I agree with the sentiment in one narrow sense. There was a time for racial reparations in this country. It was in 1870 or in 1867 after the Civil War. But today what we're doing is not saying, even what he said, is not saying that you have to actually recompense somebody who was harmed. We have to say what we're effectively saying in our current system is that you look like somebody who once did a bad thing. And you look like somebody to whom a bad thing was once done. Therefore, we need to take from you and give to you. That's wrong and makes no sense. And in fact, most beneficiaries of race-based affirmative action today are descendants, not of slaves, but of immigrants who came to this country after JFK liberalized immigration policy. And so it doesn't work in any sense of even the way it was intended to. And so that's why it's been a failure on every count. And I expect and hope that the Supreme Court begins to overturn it. And then when I'm U.S. president, I'll take what they'll probably give us for college admissions and take that to every sphere of our lives, saying that we're going to restore colorblind meritocracy in this country. That's what it means to be American. 
I can't defend, I can't defend the, the son or the daughter of an African-American couple where he's a lawyer and she's a doctor having their child get a leg up in the Harvard admissions prospect against the child of a white person whose parents work in the trades. I mean, somehow that's a miss. And by the way, um, having gone through this process four times with children of my own, I know the process well. I keep threatening to write a book about <laughs> college admissions because I consider myself to be uh, an, an expert. I recognize that, that Asian Americans, Asians generally, are getting the short end of the stick because I'm painting now with a very broad brush and I'll get in trouble, but they seem to be so superior in terms of performance academically only to have subjective personality traits mm-hmm. held against them. Like, it's not right. Like, it's a bad system. People are being punished as a result of the system that we have. But we never did achieve what we set out to do in terms of, of folks of color, black Americans. And I feel like what's about to happen, and we saw this in the University of California system, uh, Berkeley in particular, we know what's about to, to transpire. You're going to see fewer and fewer black students accepted at some of the most prestigious schools in the United States. And that's not a good outcome either. Well, I'll tell you what is a good outcome is empowering Americans of every stripe and color starting at a young age to have access to a high quality education. The problem starts early on. So school choice is a great answer to actually empower families starting at a young age instead of a Band-Aid on the back end. And, and you know, we, we had this Juneteenth holiday that's now part of the American fabric. Let's talk about what we ought to celebrate. I think that what I was reflecting on in the last 48 hours was – whether we actually need to liberate kids from psychological slavery today that teach them that you cannot get ahead in this country based on the color of your skin. I can't think of something more toxic to seed in the mind of a young American. Hang on. When you say we've had this Juneteenth holiday in in a rather dismissive tone, should we not have had that holiday yesterday? I don't think that we should have made it a national holiday. No, I think that that's one of the areas where I disagree with President Trump. Because if we can make a holiday for everything, then every day is going to be off of whatever we celebrate in some grievance in our history. But what I did try to do was at least to frame it in my public comments to say that given that it's a new holiday, we can still at least define what it ought to mean to us. And I think what it ought to mean is that we're done looking in the rearview mirror at retrospective grievance and let it at least be a day where we celebrate how far we have come in the last 160 years to say that this is now the quintessential nation on earth where no matter your skin color or where your parents came from or how long your last name is, you can still get ahead in this country based on your own hard work and commitment and dedication. I could, and if that's what I want to celebrate, I can get behind that. I could spend the whole hour talking about only that issue, but I want to cover a lot of ground and not keep you all to myself because I promised the audience they'd be able to have uh, some opportunity as, as well. Um, New York City health officials last week unveiled the city's first public health vending machine. I'm sure you followed this, featuring free drug paraphernalia, anti-overdose meds for addicts, the big blue box was installed in Brooklyn. It'll offer potentially life-saving, life-saving naloxone to drug users who've overdosed on opioids. I know you were just in the Kensington section of Philadelphia. Are you, first of all, are you familiar generally with this vending machine that was there to support, among others, addicts? I saw the headlines about this. I am not shocked because it's a trend that we're beginning to see in different parts of the country, bet, including here in Philadelphia. I'll bet DeVake, yeah. the libertarian— would have understood and approved of that. 
would have understood and approved of government-approved vending machines or funded policies? No, absolutely not. Not, not, of, not, of, not of live and let live and stay not out of, of their way? Not of government funding to do it. So, so I actually think – I actually just talked to a few folks who looked like they were suffering from some serious addiction problems, one of whom was shooting up on the street, but we had a conversation just now in Kensington. I said, what's one of the major problems you see here? The person sitting next to him said – they're giving out syringes and crack pipes right here. One of the volunteers helping them says that's actually a problem. Funded by who? Let's double click on that. It's by us, the taxpayers, through the government what's that we the supposedly alternative? create. Well, I think that the real alternative is economic empowerment. That area of Kensington we were walking around, that was an industrial base in a thriving manufacturing town only 60 years ago. So the first step is at least stop the symptomatic problems, stop the symptoms, stop paying people to do the things that we don't want them to do. Actually close the Swiss cheese of a southern border where most of the fentanyl that people are using in Kensington today, where I just came from, 80% of that at least crosses the Swiss cheese of the southern border that we have. I would use the military as U.S. president to secure that southern border. And then we talk about actually economic Posse revitalization in this country. How can you do that? You literally put them on the border. So Posse Comitatus refers to – thank you. I mean you put them on the border. Not on the streets of the United States, but on the border. And I agree with building the wall, but there are certain areas that cannot be secured with the wall. This is such a dire crisis in this country. That's where most of the fentanyl is coming from. We need to seal every hole in that southern border. And increasingly, people need to be aware of this, even in our northern border. We actually have the capacity to do this. And Michael, think about what this would do for pride in our military and in our country. If our military was actually used to solve a clear and present problem and danger that we face here at home, that would actually revive pride and purpose back in our military rather than sending them to secure somebody else's border and God knows where. We can secure our own border here at home. I share your concern about porous borders. I I think it's one of the great failings of our time. I'm I'm not agreeing with you saying just because the deployment is going to be on the border that you get beyond the legal issues of posse comitatus. Do you want to spend a second on that? Sure, please. So so I... I, (laughs) consider myself to be a staunch defender of the Constitution and laws that were constitutionally passed, including Posse Comitatus, which was a Reconstruction-era statute after the Civil War, which said that you can't use the military to carry out law enforcement functions. Here's where the – and again, this is why it takes an outsider with an understanding of the Constitution to actually come in and clean things up. Here's what the establishment misses. They say just because immigration has historically been handled – As a law enforcement matter, you therefore cannot use the military to address it. My deep understanding, and by the way, somebody who I disagree with on a lot of issues, Bill Barr, has written out and come out with legal opinions saying the same thing that I'm telling you after he left office, by the way, which is that just because it has historically been a law enforcement function does not mean it can not also be a function that the military handles as long as it relates to a foreign threat. This absolutely relates to a foreign threat of both migrants coming from the south as well as Chinese-manufactured synthetic materials going into fentanyl inputs made by Mexican drug cartels shuttled across our southern border. So that's not – if you deeply understand Posse Comitatus, just because it has historically been a law enforcement function does not mean that it is not also potentially the domain of the military to handle if it's literally at the border, outward-facing against external threats to the United States, which is absolutely what this fentanyl crisis is all about. Bill Barr, you referenced Bill Barr just published today. I know you're on the campaign trail. You might not yet have seen it, but in the free press, Barr published an essay today about Donald Trump. It's titled The Truth. He essentially 
recounts the timeline here, says that, that Trump removed the materials illegally, that he stonewalled, that he gave the government no choice, that the presidential records defense that Trump asserts is farcical. Interestingly, he acknowledges, he, Bill Barr, acknowledges, yeah, there, there is a double standard when looking at the treatment of Hillary versus the treatment of Donald Trump, but that the double standard that he, Barr, ex- believes exists is not reason enough to diminish the rule of law. If anything, it's basis for a return to the rule of law. You've been very loath to be critical to the, in fact, to the contrary, you went down to Florida and you said, hey, I'm going to pardon him on day one if I'm president of the United States. Are you not diminishing the rule of law by taking that stand? I am not. In fact, I'm standing for the rule of law. How do you see that? Yes, yeah, so I'll explain it to you. And I could, we could get complicated, we could get quick, but I'm going to stay quick here unless you want to go deep. The quick answer here is think about this, and nobody's made this point, so I'm going to make it right now. The Presidential Records Act came after the Espionage Act, which is a Woodrow Wilson-era statute that was since modified after World War II. That's what they're using to charge Trump. Here's the rub. Think about this with me, Michael. The legal theory that the Department of Justice is using under the Espionage Act would actually criminalize even the removal of unclassified documents because that law does not draw the distinction between classified and unclassified. The Presidential Records Act of 1978 came after and specifically gives U.S. presidents access to unclassified documents in an unfettered manner. That means that the Presidential Records Act supersedes the Espionage Act as it applies to past presidents, and yet there isn't nary a mention of the most relevant statute, the Presidential Records Act, in that indictment. So if I were you know, in this litigating this case, and Trump's lawyers typically haven't had the great sense to do this very well, they should file a motion to dismiss on grounds that the Presidential Records Act supersedes the actual Espionage Act under which is being charged. But the point to me is even a deeper one, because I'm not, I'm not I, his can lawyer. I respond to that? I'm a presidential candidate. Yep. He had material that didn't belong to him. It belonged to us. He refused to hand it back. Bill Barr. So here's what I would say in response to I just want to to reply to something you just offered. These are the words of his his own attorney general, at least. His own former attorney general, and I I will go into constitutional depth toe-to-toe with you if you want. It's more fact-based than it is legally based. On leaving office, Trump illegally removed from the White House hundreds of some of the most sensitive national defense documents that the country possesses. They included information on the defense capabilities of the U.S. and foreign countries, our country's nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the U.S. and our allies, plans for potential retaliation against foreign attack, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The government had every right, indeed, it had no choice but to retrieve this material. Do you disagree with that from Bill Barr? So here's where I agree and here's where I disagree. Trump made a bad judgment. I would have made a different judgment if I were in his shoes. And the reality of this country is that we empower U.S. presidents to make god-awful judgments, to go to Iraq on theories of weapons of mass destruction, to pull out of Afghanistan in ways that leave hundreds of billions or tens of billions in the hands of the Taliban. The fact is we, in in our law, empower the U.S. president to make bad judgments. But a bad judgment is not the same as an illegal act. And when you have prosecutors that conflate the two, that's not just a threat to Trump. That is a threat to every American. Yeah. And so I stand for the rule of law. Oh, I'm running on. for president for a reason. I would have made different judgments than he did. But I'm doing this not to defend Trump. I'm doing it to stand 
for the equal application of the rule of law. I think the Espionage Act, I want to go on record on this. I want to go on record on one thing here. The Espionage Act under which he was charged, people deserve to know this. Hundreds of anti-war activists were arrested in the wake of World War I by Woodrow Wilson using this act to do it. And the McCarthyist era was used to stifle political dissent. This is a law that has been expansively interpreted to actually lock up Julian Assange, to lock up other government leakers selectively, but not CIA directors who themselves have walked out of the office with classified documents. That is not the rule of law. Bill that Barr, is the selective politicization. I'm, I'm going I'm to rely on the former attorney general. With I rely I, on the with, Constitution. And with the, whom and, I agree on this exact issue. The, well, there's one well, individual you're quoting here. Go for it. Uh, there are many individuals I could I <laughs> no, could go be for it. I, mean, I'll have, I mean, I respect Bill. And I'll While have, the double standard is real, again, I set this up, I, I think, with deliberation to explain that he acknowledges that there's been dis- disparate treatment in the past between R's and D's. While the double standard is real, responding to Trump's indictment by repetitively invoking this grievance is essentially a dodge. It sidesteps the real questions raised by Trump's behavior. The question is this. Should Trump have been given a pass by the DOJ because Hillary may have been given one? Some of my Republican friends think the answer is yes. I'm unconvinced. It's not clear to me that giving Trump a pass would be the best way to restoring the rule of law and putting a double standard behind us. You get the final word, and then I've got to take a break. So, so that wasn't the argument that I was making. Others are saying, well, Hillary did it, therefore Trump should be held to a different standard. I do agree there's two standards of law, but I'm talking about the actual law itself. Understood. And, and, and you, the, class, you, you characterized courts, his behavior as just a, a matter of bad a Very judgment. bad judgment. But okay. that's different than a breakage of law. In the Clinton sock drawer case in 2012, Judge Jackson held that the Presidential Records Act gives one person, her words not mine, sole authority in determining what records are covered, and that's the President of the United States. The same president who we empower with the decision to whether or not to drop nuclear bombs, it turns out we give them the power reco- to determine what documents if, are and aren't counted it, as what counts as a record. If, as described in the indictment, there's a recording of him flashing in, in a, uh, an Iranian attack plan. Can you defend that? Here's where I would actually come I mean, out on the yes other side no. of this, just, just to give you a sense of what my position is. If he were selling these secrets to foreign enemies or if there were evidence of using these for private gain or taking a $5 million bribe from a state affiliate official in order to give hundreds of billions of dollars in aid back, those things to me would strike me as actually deeply problematic. If evidence comes out to that effect, I'll change my mind on this, and I'll change my position. But short of that, on these facts, if I assume the worst facts are the ones in the indictment, then yes, I'm prepared to stand by my pledge to pardon him. Okay, so, so you're giving him a pass depending on what his motivation was. That's criminal law. You understand criminal law, mens rea, state of mind. Embedded into our criminal law is the idea that there actually has to be intent. And let me educate you on but, one small point because it's important history. The Espionage Act used to have a criminal intent requirement. They actually modified it to take the criminal intent requirement out. I don't think that's even constitutional. Okay. So I would when, repeal the Espionage when, Act itself. When he is subpoenaed to surrender this material and doesn't, when there's then a search warrant executed and still they don't have everything, he has the requisite mens re. He knew that he had possession of information that didn't belong to him, that belonged to all of us. And like a petulant child to the end, he still wouldn't give it over. He's his own worst enemy. So... Those are two different statements in there. As I said, and I will state again, I would have made different judgments than Donald Trump. I am running for president against him for a reason, but I want to win by persuading the people of this country to vote for me as their leader, not by having the federal administrative police state decide who can and cannot run. That's not how I want to win. Okay. 
I need. A, I would have made different judgments, but that's different than saying that there's a crime at issue. We will be back to the Center Theater in Norristown, Pennsylvania, after our one and only break this hour. Thank you. The politics of the United States. For the people of the United States. Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. A Sirius XM town hall with 2024 Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. More with Michael Smirkanish coming up next. Catch up and listen again anytime on the SXM app. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessed from anywhere you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform slashing manual tasks and errors over 37,000 companies have already made the move so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. Hey parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. 
Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. The Michael Smirconish Program on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Now back to a Sirius XM town hall with Vivek Ramaswamy. Live from the historic Center Theater in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Here's Michael Smirconish. Yes, we're at the Center Theater in Norristown, part of the Philly Burbs with Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, by the way, I've kept them to myself, but I'll now incorporate some comments or questions from the live audience here in Norristown. And if you very quickly want to dial the usual number, 855-486-1776, I'll try and take some calls by phone as well. TC, standing by. Who do you have, TC? Hi, this is Robin. Hi, Robin, go ahead. Um, I'm asking a question from your YouTube Live, and it's from Kelly McCluskey. She'd like to ask Vivek what he feels is the most important part of his platform. What, I'm sorry, what the most important part of his platform is and why we should vote for him over someone with more experience in politics. So I think if this race is about political experience, then Joe Biden should absolutely be the next elected president because he had more political experience than many of the rest in the race combined. I think this needs to be about vision and ability to execute. And so I've got fresh legs. I'm 37. I'm the first millennial ever to run for the GOP nomination for president. But I am doing it with the vision of my own. So what, if, what would I do? Three things that I want to get done. I want you to hold my feet to this fire. If there's Three things I will have told you that I did in January 2033 when I leave office. Here's what they'll be. One is there will be three branches of government left in the United States again, not four. We will have shut down the administrative and regulatory state full stop. The second thing, thank you. Second thing I'll have done is declared independence from communist China. We will no longer be dependent on our enemy for our modern way of life. And the third thing I will have done is hopefully to have revived a sense of civic pride, national pride in the next generation of Americans. Right now, they're not proud to be an American. By the time I'm done leading this country for eight years, if we're successful in accomplishing number one and number two, then number three will follow. Americans will be proud to be citizens of this nation again. Those three things I'm confident I can deliver, and that alone would be a successful presidency for me. Vivek, from the Wall Street Journal today, China and Cuba negotiating to establish a new joint military training facility on the island, sparking alarm in Washington that it could lead to the stationing of Chinese troops and other security and intelligence operations 100 miles off Florida's coast. This, according to current and former U.S. officials, you would do what? China is testing us. And what I would do first is we have to declare independence from our enemy. I'll give you the other example of where they tested us, the Chinese spy balloon. If that had been a Russian spy balloon floating over half the United States, we would have shot it down in an instant and ratcheted up sanctions. The reason we don't do it with respect to China is because we know that we can't or are afraid of the economic consequences we might suffer. So I would re-enter trade deals with Japan, South Korea, India, Southeast Asia, Australia, around the Pacific Rim. I'd sit across the table from Xi Jinping and say, we're cutting the cord, we're done, unless and until you reform, both economically and you stop the military ratcheting up of pressure that we see. The other thing I would do is I would pull Russia out of its military <clears throat> alliance with China. That's what gives Xi Jinping confidence. Here's how his headspace works, okay? He thinks the U.S. will not want to risk simultaneous war with 
two allied nuclear superpowers at the same time. And he's probably right. That's why they're testing us. So I would end the war in Ukraine in a manner that required Putin to get out of his alliance with China. That takes the confidence and wind out of Xi Jinping's sail. That's how we actually I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but I'm hearing that yours would be a trade response to this current Cuba situation, not a military response. The, the current Cuba situation is a symptom, Michael, of the deeper problem. So there's a, there's a military response, which is pulling Russia out of China's camp. That allows Xi Jinping to then stand alone, which is where we want him. And the second thing I would do is reduce our economic independence, which allows us to be unshackled to actually stand up with a spine, which is not something we've done for a long time in this country vis-a-vis China. I'm coming in to do exactly that. I read your most recent book. It's called Nation of, of Victims. It's my second most recent book. But yeah. Second most recent book. <laughs> Woke is the... Woke was first and Capitalist Punishment came third. Okay. Uh, by the way, I have that at home, but I've not read it, to be candid. But this caught my eye in, in the book that I'm holding now in my hand. Uh, you are embracing, you correct me if I'm wrong, an inheritance tax rate of at least 59%. Fair? So, so this is a thought experiment in this book. It is unimplementable in the, in the current U.S. system. Here's actually where would, I come out. Would you, if you could? I would not in that narrow context because of the sh- sh- consequences of it. But I stand by the thought experiment in this book, which was this. Look, and this goes to exactly why on the affirmative action topic, I've also said I would let go of legacy admissions at Harvard. I want an even playing field. I say this as somebody who's earned many hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of my life. I believe that if we could all have a low to non-existent flat tax rate over the course of our lives, but trade that off to say that each generation starts in the same place – I would absolutely take that trade in an instant. Okay, is it fair? And I think it's a mentality shift in our country to say that, you know what, if we're embracing meritocracy, I don't need my kids to have more of a head start if everyone's playing by the same rules that each generation has the same access to education and the same access to economic advancement. May the best and most highest achieving ones win in their most respective ways. That's what I was talking about. Okay, I, I didn't when I read it. I'm, I'm happy to hear you say this because I didn't take it as a thought experiment. I, I note that you said that you are for a, quote, very high inheritance tax. Are you? In the context of a very low flat tax, if we could get a single-digit flat tax rate across the country, and that was something that we were actually able to achieve, and make the changes to the gaming that people use to find their way around the inheritance tax now, which is also something I talk about extensively in there, that would be a great state of affairs. We are not going to get there, and I believe in prioritization for how you set the goals of a presidency. So I've set the priorities that I actually can drive. There's no way we're going to get that type of tax reform done until we have economic growth in this country. But yes, if we could have a low single-digit flat tax for everybody – and recollect it on the back end by ending the gaming on the inheritance tax, we absolutely would. And I'll tell you one way to do it that is practical, to realize that same vision. I would eliminate the step-up in basis upon death. That is a big loophole in the tax system that effectively allows people to pass on bequeathed wealth in ways that create an arbitrary advantage. So what that means is the basis, when you pass it on to the next generation, even if you bought it for a dollar – and somebody inherits it for $1,000, if they sell it for $1,100, they're only paying $100 in tax. But this is is part of a a much larger discussion in the book. It's kind of funny in parts because you talk about Wilt Chamberlain and about his kids, and you try and draw a lesson from that. And then you say we should think of high inheritance taxes not just as a way of redistributing wealth, 
but as a way of redistributing duty. I mean, I, I'm, I work, my wife works, we're raising four with the prospect, we hope, of being able to, to leave them something to better their own lives. That's part of, of mm-hmm. what drives me to juggle the many different careers that I have. So I'm just a little confused as to whether you really are for a, quote, very high inheritance tax. And the political question that I really wanted to ask is, how are you going to sell that in Iowa to farmers? So here's, here's where I'm, what I'm for. This whole book, if you've read it, you know what the book is about. I've and read I sta- it. And I stand by it is a revival of civic duty in this country. So one of the policies that is part of my presidential platform, but to channel some of that same spirit, is that I would take the voting age, as you know, from 18 to we 25. We talked about this on TV. But still allow you to vote at 18. If you have service. If you either serve the country or you pass the same civics test that every immigrant has to pass in order to come to this country. Okay. I prom- so I think we have to think I'm, big I'm, to I'm revive gonna, civic I'm gonna, duty. I'm going to let this go, I promise, after just one last yeah, sure. call. Are you backing off what you said in the book? because politically it can't be sold, or are you still for a very high inheritance tax? In the context of a low flat tax for everybody, a single-digit flat tax for everybody, then yes, I would make up for that on the inheritance tax on the back end. However, there is no way that is going to get through Congress in the lifetime that you and I live. And so I offer that as a thought experiment of the way we have to be thinking is how do we create equal opportunity, unapologetically allow everybody to pursue their version of the American dream, and yet start at the same starting line, then we don't need to obsess over inequality of results. Uh, so I don't think it's pragmatically implementable, but the philosophy behind it, I absolutely stand behind. I want to, in, I want to incorporate or include from Asheville, North Carolina, Spencer for our guest, Vivek Ramaswamy. Spencer, quickly, if you don't mind, because we're limited on time. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I wanted to ask Mr. Ramaswamy, you have this pledge for the other Republican candidates to pardon Trump if convicted. Would you implement a sort of similar written or verbal pledge regarding militarizing the southern border? Because that's such an important issue for so many people. So what I said in that particular case is they're free to disagree with me, but you should either pledge to pardon him on the grounds that I have or else explain why. That's what I said. So I don't believe in letting either Democrat or traditional Republican politicians hide. I think they need to come out where they actually stand. On effectively, a lot of the policies I've taken, my stand against affirmative action, using the U.S. military to secure the southern border, for most of these, my challenge to the other candidates is by being in the race. And I intend to actually run and win and implement this vision. So in this particular case, I think it was useful to be able to at least smoke out where people stand as that news cycle played out to be able to say in the present, this is where we stand. For the rest of my policy positions, my goal isn't to be a moderator for the rest of the Republican field. I hope they adopt my policies. Many of them already have started to in the last several months, which I think is a good thing. But I'm running to actually win the election and to actually deliver on that vision from affirmative action to the southern border, to restoring the rule of law in this country, to actually declaring independence from China. The way I expect to lead is not just in the debate but to actually lead through governing this country over the next eight years. From the live audience here in Norristown, Pennsylvania, who do we have, TC? I'm Dan. Hi, Hi. Dan. Um, here's the reason I actually came, and I heard you on another talk show explaining constitutionally how you can cut back the administrative state. Can you just kind of go over that again? I know you have the constitutional authority as president, but can you explain how it will be done? Thank you. Great question. And so this is part of my responsibility in this race. 
I think I have the deepest understanding of how to do it of anyone who's run for president in the last 30 years. There are two objections that have gotten in the way of past presidents. One is they say there are civil service protections, that you can't fire people except for cause, which is a really limited set of circumstances. I actually believe in reading the law. So there's a law, 5 U.S.C. 3302, that actually gives the U.S. president the authority to set the guidelines and regulations for the Office of Personnel Management. That's like the HR department of the federal government. I will use that authority to say that, you know what, if most of these positions are occupied by people who have sat there for more than eight years, and I can't sit in the White House for eight years, neither are they going to sit in their positions for more than eight years either. I will shut down government agencies using the 1977 Presidential Reorganization Statute. There were some provisions of that statute that expired in 1980 that actually limited the president's authority. But the parts that did not expire, because back then Congress didn't trust Jimmy Carter, they expressly expired in 1980. The other provisions that didn't expire say you can shut down agencies if there are redundancies in the administrative state, if it is to promote the economy, which shutting down many of these agencies would absolutely do. So I will stand on that authority as well. The other major obstacle that gets in the way is what they call impoundment prevention. That means if Congress allocates the money, you have to spend it. Part of the reason that happened was that the administrative state and presidents started to get lazy. So the administrative state starting, started submitting draft appropriation language to Congress that used to say, we may spend, asking for permission to spend. They started to submit language that said, we shall spend. So when that came back from Congress and the U.S. president says, I don't want to spend this, the deep state goes to the president and says, no, 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 Congress says you shall spend it. So under my watch, all budget requests will run through the White House, will go back to asking for actual permission to spend the money. It will say may rather than shall in our draft appropriations budget. Vivek. So that's just a taste of exactly getting into the mechanics and details. This is not a slogan for me. This is a life mission. And by the time I'm done in 2033, I promise you this, when I'm leaving office, I will tell you we have three branches of government in this country, not four, and I'm the person in this race who's actually equipped to deliver it. Thanks for that. I don't want to neglect the uh, phone callers as well. Jeff in Miami, quickly for Vivek Ramaswamy. Go ahead. Uh, thank you. Uh, cutting ties with China will take decades. It's taken 50 years of giving them manufacturing to make our products cheaper and faster. And it's not going to happen because you say it's going to happen. It's going to take a decade or more to cut ties, move logistics, move supply channels. We learned that during the pandemic. Uh, nothing could happen overnight, uh, whether it be chips or food or brooms. It doesn't much matter. That's going to take many, many years to do. And uh, I already paid taxes on my income. I should be able to give it to my family when I want to and not be worried. Uh, inheritance tax is a bad thing. I think we need to tax the right people at the right amount. I'm not saying I know what that right amount is, but there's way too many wealthy people who pay a lot less taxes than I do. And I'm a working guy. I'm doing well. I'm not complaining. I have a good life. I'm an upper middle class income bracket, and I pay my, certainly my fair share of taxes. But when guys who are making, you know, multi-millions a year pay less than I do, something's wrong with the system. Hey, Jeff, I'm going to say, say thank you because lots of folks want to talk to Vivek. Go ahead and respond. Let me address this. I, I agree with you. Actually, most of the system is gaming when it comes to the inheritance tax. So when I talked about the step up in basis, 
That's actually a way that people find their way around the system, I believe, in a clear set of rules that everybody should follow the same set of rules. The tax code is rife with special privileges as a product of lobbying. And if I were to touch the tax code, it is to simplify it first to make sure everyone's playing by the same set of rules. On the first point on China, this is, the, this is really important. So th- we pretend like there's two choices, onshoring it all to the U.S. or keeping the status quo with China. There's a third way, and here's where I'm a little different than Trump, too. I think that we need to re-enter some of those specific trade partnerships that we left on the table. Japan to South Korea to Southeast Asia, even South America, Brazil, Mexico, and so on. We've done the math on this. That actually makes it a lot more easy to cut that cord from China than it might first seem. And that puts me in a position to sit across the table from Xi Jinping, where he knows I mean it, to say we're ready to do it. Will there be some short-run potential inconvenience? Yes, there will. But it is when you are most willing to make a sacrifice that you won't actually have to make one at all. Because here's what's going to happen. When I tell that to Xi Jinping and he knows that that I mean it, he will fold because they're in a weaker economic spot than we are today. He shot himself in the foot last year. You brought up COVID. The zero COVID policies were about his power and dominion and control over his population to hold on to his third term. So we actually have the stronger hand than they do. We just have to do our homework of first shoring up those supply chains from our other allies, which we have not done. And the second thing is have some willingness to think on the timescales of history instead of the timescales of tomorrow to say that, and you know what, if there is some inconvenience, we will bear it because I'm thinking about our grandkids. I'm not just thinking about my next quarterly earnings report. And if we do that, Xi Jinping folds. That's exactly what's going to happen. But it takes spine. That's what I'm bringing to the table. Trying to squeeze in one or two more from the live audience if I can. Who's next? Hello. Hi. Hello. I'd like to point out a uh, culture contrast between the countries of India and the United States. You were tossing around reparations a little earlier. India was under England for over 300 years. I never heard Indians asking for reparations compared to the United States. The United States is give me, give me, give me. Another thing is the Indian people don't seem to ask for, uh, they don't seem to say, I want what you have. What they say is, I want the ability to get what you have. Whereas in America, everybody is a victim and we are to feel sorry for them. So you bring up a, a difficult subject and I'm glad you do it. I'll speak first personally. Probably not supposed to say this, but I will. I mean, my grandparents were subjects of a British colony, right? They were actually in a tougher spot than many people of other races that get favorable racial preferences here in the United States. But my point is we can't all look in the rearview mirror or else we're just going to keep crashing if we have our eyes on that rearview mirror. There is no winner in the oppression Olympics. The gold medalist, if there is one, is China, as we go on our race to the bottom here in the United States. Guys, the real wait, loser is guys, America. Guys, we have 30 seconds left. I can't let that pass. No, nobody was brought shackled to India from a nation that was not their own. It's just an apples to orange comparison. Most beneficiaries everyone, of affirmative ev- action every, are, are immigrants to this everyone country. Everyone has absolutely. dealt with, with indignity. Every group, including my own, my own uh, ancestors. I agree with that. But nothing compares to slavery. Do you agree with that, sir? No, I don't. You don't? Okay. No, I don't. All right. Well, on that note, on that happy note, let me, let me say sincerely to you, thank you for being here. Appreciate the conversation. Appreciate the dialogue. I'm optimistic for the country, guys. Thank okay. you. Thank you. And, and thank you to our live audience at the Center Theater. 
in Norristown, Pennsylvania. This has been a really great couple of hours, especially this hour. Thanks, everybody. XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Talking politics all day. And keeping you up to date every hour. CBS News headlines are here in 60 seconds. Hey parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity set up chores, and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.